What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Brian Feraldi. Brian is an investor, writer, and content creator. He is one of my favorite follows on Twitter when it comes to personal finances and investing. And he joined me for today's episode to discuss his new book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? This was an awesome conversation with Brian, and I hope that you enjoy it too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering my listeners 15% off their Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. So go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. I'm here with Brian Feraldi, who is an excellent follow on Twitter, one of my favorites, talks about everything personal finance and is very helpful when it comes to the stock market and everything else. So Brian just wrote a book called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? So I asked him to come on the show and talk through a bunch of this stuff. Brian, how are you? Doing great, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. I'm pumped that you came on. Let's start with your background. I think that's probably helpful just so people have some context about who you are, where you came from, et cetera. Sure. Grew up in um, Rhode Island in the suburbs of Providence. Went to college from 2000 to 2004. It's actually where my I met my wife. And despite being a business major, I was taught very little formally about money, personal finance, and investing. When I graduated in 2004, my dad handed me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that event really changed my life. I devoured that book just a couple of days, and that has just set off a never-ending binge session and a love of learning about everything related to money, investing, and specifically the stock market. So I've been investing in the stock market for about 18 years now, about seven years ago, while my initial career was in healthcare at a uh, medical device company. Seven years ago, I switched to become a writer for an online publication called The Motley Fool, and I've been talking about that ever since. I love it. Where does Rich Dad, Poor Dad rank in your all-time personal finance books? So it's, it's, it's up there for me. I mean, a lot of people call it like a gateway drug or a gateway book to other books, and that's certainly what it was for me. Now, if I read that book today, there's some things in there that I disagree with, and like I would not follow the investing principles as, as he lays them out in there. However, it was the first book that I ever read that really introduced me to a lot of concepts about money. Like you're in business for yourself. The rich think about money differently. The rich buy assets. You can become rich in one generation. Those principles are were transformative to me. So for that reason, it's still up there as one of my favorite books. 
I agree with that. What else is on your list? Oh gosh, there's been so many wonderful books that have been- You don't have to go through the whole thing, right? You know, two, three, four, maybe something like that. I know you probably have a laundry list at this point of, of helpful resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love to read, right? I love reading about money and finance, everything like that. But I would say The Richest Man in Babylon and The Wealthy Barber, those are kind of like classic books that have been out there for years. And those really help to set your money mindset the right way. The Millionaire Next Door, anything by Thomas Stanley about how the rich- actually live and invest. And then anything about like Warren Buffett and how he invests. So the Warren Buffett way is a fantastic book. One of my favorites that's more of a niche, if you're into the details of investing like I am, is called Warren Buffett and the Interpretation of Financial Statements. And that actually shows you step by step how Warren Buffett thinks about financial statements line by line. So that book taught me a lot. Gotcha. And I guess I'm on a more broader point. How do you think about where we are globally, or at least within the United States from like a financial education standpoint? I think there's plenty of work to, to do and to be done. I mean, as I said, I was taught nothing about money or investing or personal finance formally. And it's like looking back, it's like, why was I taught algebra two and trigonometry and details about chemistry? Like, I'm, I'm glad I learned those things, but it would have been so much more helpful for me to have a class about, hey, let's talk about budgeting. Let's talk about smart shopping. Let's talk about how the stock market works, what a 401k is, right? Those basic things. And I think so many people are just thrown out into the world and the world just assumes that people know the, those topics. I mean, I can tell you when I, when I first started my, uh, my first job, I vividly remember being there talking to the HR person, signing the forms for my health insurance and, and all that kind of stuff. And they handed me the form for my 401k. And they're like, here you go, fill it out. And I was like, can you tell me what this means? Like, what, what do I do? And they, and they were like, we, we can't tell you what to do. We're not allowed to. And I was like, well, I have no idea what any of this means. And yet I'm here I am making decisions about my financial future with essentially no education about the subject. And again, despite being a business major in college myself, the education system as it exists today is really failing a lot of people to educate them about money. Yeah, I was just going to add that you are probably on the fortunate side of that too, right? Having the ability to go to college and some of these other things where if you just look, I think the last public number I saw, maybe this was pre-pandemic, so it might be outdated at this point, but it was uh, like 45%, nearly 50% of Americans don't own investable assets, right? And there's a piece of that that is just difficult given their income, the expenses that they have, the family members that they have to take care of and so forth. But ultimately, a lot of this is education, right? If you went on the streets of random cities throughout the country and asked people generic financial questions, I think people would be surprised at some of the answers. And part of this is we don't teach it in most high schools throughout. I know there's a few states now that are implementing rules where you have to take financial education classes for your GED. But like, how do you recommend, say someone comes to you with a, with a blank sheet, right? And they're like, hey, I don't know anything about this stuff. What do you tell them? Like, is it, hey, go to college? I assume that's not the answer, right? What is your first kind of recommendation for people to get their financial lives in order? Yeah, the, the, the first step to get your financial life in war order always starts with educating yourself. And we are absolutely spoiled today as, as humans that there is an unbelievable amount of free high quality content that is out there that can really help to educate you drastically. I mean, there are podcasts, high quality podcasts on almost any subject that you can think of, and you can learn a, a ton from that. There's YouTube videos that you can watch to learn. There's, of course, 
hundreds of great books out there. There's blogs that are out there. So I would start by saying, start with education in whatever format you are most comfortable learning in. If you're a reader, great. There's lots of books that you can recommend. If you're the type of person that listens to the podcast, great. Let's let's start with some some podcasts there. But educating yourself is always step one. All right. And what do you think is happening right now? The market's going down crazy. We're recording this on Thursday, the 12th, right? And there's some kind of pandemonium going on of people freaking out, whether it's stocks. I don't know if people got their entire net worth in Netflix, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's stable coins, whatever it might be. There seems to be a lot of noise going on, right? You've been through and invested through a number of different cycles now, boom and bust. What is your kind of take on exactly what's going on and how people should react to this? The volatility that we've been experiencing recently is extraordinary. I mean, the volatility that investors have had to deal with over the last two years, essentially since COVID started, has been has been wild. In 2020, so many new investors flooded the market. Many people that had never thought about money before were all of a sudden taking interest in it. And the unfortunate thing that they learned in 2020 was buy anything, the riskier the thing you buy, the better, and you are instantaneously rewarded with a massive return. And if that is your early experience with it, how could you not think that investing is easy and making money is is no sweat? All you have to do is buy things, wait, and they go up instantaneously. What we've seen over the last year is the exact opposite of that, where it's buy anything and you're going to lose money rapidly. I can tell you that my personal portfolio peaked in February of 2021, and it's been a sickening slide ever since. But I've now invested, this is like the third major downturn that I've been through. So 2020 was a rough month. I invested throughout 2007 to 2009. And I would say it it was definitely worse then than than it is now. I mean, at the time, the economy was grinding to a halt. There were banks that were going under. People were losing their houses, right? There was no jobs available anywhere. And stock prices and asset prices were, were tanking. Now, we're dealing with some extreme things right now, right? We're dealing with inflation for the first time in 40 years. There's a war going on that might be escalating. Fingers crossed it just fizzles out. But who knows what's going to happen next with that? Interest rates are finally rising to combat inflation, and that's taken the the wind out of the sails of a lot of asset prices. So we are in very stressful times for a lot of investors. It's just extraordinary. What are the biggest mistakes you see people making in times like this? The number one mistake that I have made historically is always having too short, short term of a focus. A lot of people, especially if they're new to investing, they tell themselves before they start investing that they can handle volatility, right? They're looking at just the upside potential. And they, and if you look back historically at any asset class that's done well, stocks or cryptocurrencies, they look back at the historic volatility and they tell themselves, I can handle it. Right. They, they, they fool themselves into thinking that and they can handle it as long as the volatility is heading in the right direction. Uh, however, I don't think a lot of people are mentally prepared to deal with the downturn that comes. What we've seen right now is that asset prices everywhere are just declining and the headlines that are coming out of the news are, are just broadly terrible. People are freaking out and, and companies, even good companies that are out there can essentially do nothing right. They can report positive results and their stock prices are still tanking. In such an environment, there's a huge desire for a lot of people to end the pain as quickly as possible. And one way to do so is to just panic sell, panic sell and go back to cash. However, that is essentially saying I can time the market. I'm going to try and time the market. And while it might feel good 
in the moment. History shows that selling after big declines is actually the wrong thing to do. And actually, missing out on the best days of the market over a decade, just missing out on a few of the best days will eviscerate any returns that you have. And the best days in the market actually tend to be highly correlated with the worst days in the market. So when volatility is spiking as it is now, yes, you can you can go through gut-wrenching losses in a single day, but there's also huge gains that are be had in those days that are right around there. So the biggest suggestion I can get is to just stay the course, follow your investment plan, and just mentally tough it out. Yeah. I mean, I can only speak from personal experience, obviously, but I think that that was one of the things that always surprised me and really shocked me in my mind, the line about if you miss the few of the best days, then your performance dramatically decreases. I remember seeing a chart a while ago, and of course, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was like, you know, over the past decade, if you miss like five or seven of the best days or 10 of the best days, your, your return got cut in half, essentially, right? And if you're trying to time the market and you're getting cute and you're doing all these different things, the likelihood that you miss one of those days is, is much higher, right? So I think that's certainly part of it. But I'm curious to hear your opinion on the market today, right? And maybe it's more of the psychology around the market today, because to me, it sounds like you follow a lot of the time-tested principles of, of stay invested, dollar cost average, make sure you're doing the right things. And there's kind of this playbook now that's been built up over decades, where if you follow these kind of four, five, six, seven rules, you're going to accumulate money. It's going to start to build. Your net worth is going to grow, all of that, right? But the market in my mind has has changed dramatically over the last few years with the introduction of some of the technological things that we've seen, right? So Reddit is obviously one of them. These people literally manipulated stocks to a degree that we probably haven't seen before and are still seeing. But even just the, the share of information, right? You talked about it earlier with YouTube and all these other things. Like, How has the psychology of an investor changed in your mind? Yeah, if you rewind the clock, say, even, even 30 years ago, how did people get information about the market? The By and large, the way that you got information about the market was reading about it in the paper the next day. That's how you got stock prices reported to you. Today, we are blessed and cursed that we can actually get up to the second information about, about market prices brought straight to us that are extremely accurately. And moreover, anybody with a phone, which is pretty much two-thirds of humanity at this point, the default settings on their phone is to have the stock app loaded on there. So if you just click that, you get prices that are just hitting you in the face. That adds a whole nother level of psychological complexity that investors have to deal with. I mean, just, just think about like owning your house. Can you imagine how much more buying and selling of houses there would be if every single day on your front door, there was a number that showed the value, this up to second value of your house changing up and down rapidly. And moreover, if you could move in and out of your house instantaneously for zero cost, how much more activity, how much more moving would there be in, in your house? Homeowners are blessed that that information is hidden from view. And you only really get that information if you're checking Zillow or, or when you actually go to sell. So it's really, really challenging mentally for people to stay focused on the fundamentals of a business simply because there's so much noise that's out there. All right. Talk to me about the 401k. You mentioned that it was created by accident to me before this. And I want to hear that story, obviously. I think that that sounds pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating story. So the 401k is the number one way that people save for retirement in, in America. There's $7 trillion in assets as of June of 2021. I'm sure that's lower now, but still $7 trillion in assets. 
Now, the 401k is kind of a weird name, and it comes from Section 401-K of the tax code that was changed in 1978. So Congress pushed through this random, obscure little language in the, in the tax code. And what happened was a benefits attorney in the 1980s named Ted Banna, he was reading through the, the tax code changes, and he realized that the language that was in there was now vague enough that it could be applied to thrift plans. So he, he surmised that the language would allow the pre-tax profit sharings of a thrift plan to be matched with the employer, to be combined with the employer match of a, of a thrift plan. And because of that, he created essentially the world's first 401k by convincing his own employer to start this this thing. Now, after convincing his own employer to, to do this, other employers started to do this in 1981. And gradually over time, it built up to become the most popular way that people save and pay for their retirement. But the creation of the 401k was a complete accident. And we owe it all to Ted Banna for spotting it. I love that. What is your opinion on the, the 401k today? Is it that everyone should be using this or is it something else? I think it's uh, 401k is a wonderful place for investors to park long-term capital, especially if they're going to be taking advantage of the employer match. So if your employer offers a match on your 401k and you have the ability to invest to get at least up to the match, I mean, that is as close to a no-brainer as it gets. Now, I will tell you that previously, I was a, someone that said, always max out your 401k. However, after reading Nick Majuli's great book, Just Keep Buying, he has since convinced me to uh, to change that, to be basically invest up to your 401k and then think about investing outside of that. The math that he came up with was that the average person will only save because of that tax benefit on it about 0.7% annualized over the course of their career. Now, 0.7% is, is still a, a benefit that is worth uh, going after. However, what he said is that 401k fees are often higher than that 0.7%. So the net gain to investors isn't worth locking up your capital for 50 or 60 years. But by and large, I still think investing in a 401k, especially to get the company match, is as close to a no-brainer as it gets. Yeah, at some point, it's almost like free money, right? So the ability to lock up your capital for a period of time makes sense if you're going to be getting cash from your employer. Okay, talk to me about, you mentioned fees. How do you think fees play a role in this in general, right? Like I know we could talk about mutual funds, we could talk about whether you recommend buying individual stocks themselves, index funds, whatever it is. But like, how do you think about fees for the average investor? Fees are definitely something that investors need to look at and pay attention to. Prior to writing my book, one of the things that I did was I went around to my friends in the area and I asked them how that they invest and what questions they had. And more often than not, they were investing through financial advisors. And I was like, great, glad you found somebody. How do they get paid? And more often than not, the answer was, I don't know. We've never talked about that before. And I said, mm, doesn't that sound a little strange? I am not against financial advisors being paid. They're performing a service. They deserve to be paid for doing so. But it's so funny to me that so many people that invest with financial advisors literally have no idea how they get paid. And this is where, this is where fees matter because even a one or 2% fee doesn't sound like, like much, but when compounded over a long period of time, that can drastically drag down the performance of, of any asset class. And in the days of index funds that are out there that are just so low cost, if you're the type of person that is capable of doing it yourself and you just want to invest in index funds at like four basis points per year in cost, that's a really, really efficient way to do so. Now, you asked about individual stocks. 
I personally am a fan of individual stock investing, and I the bulk of my net worth is in individual stocks. That's not something I recommend to most people, not because I don't think that they aren't smart enough to do it, simply because I don't think that most people are interested enough in business and reading through SEC filings to actually do it the right way. I think that most people should just stick to index funds, dollar cost average into them at the long periods of time, and they're likely to have a very positive outcome. But you are absolutely correct, Joe, that Focusing on the fees that you're paying along the way can have a big drag on your long-term performance. And how do you think about concentration in a, in a smaller number of stocks versus diversification in a larger number? Yeah, this is a complex topic that often comes up, and I, I truly see both sides of it. Some people say you're an idiot if you own more than 15 stocks, because at that point, you're just practicing diversification, right? Your 16th idea is that really better than your number one idea. Conversely, there have been investors out there, successful investors that own dozens or hundreds of stocks. Personally, I own about 80 of them, which sounds like I'm extremely diversified. But if you crack open my portfolio, you'll see that the top 20 positions or so account for about 70 or 80% of my total capital. So while I do own quite a few stocks, I'm more concentrated than you would believe. Broadly speaking, my strategy with that is to just add stocks to my portfolio and then let the winners run. And if you do that, your portfolio actually concentrates itself over, over time. So your capital naturally gets more concentrated into your best ideas. So I don't, I don't claim that one way is better than the other. That's just the way that works for me. And you can, you can do well by concentrating or staying diversified. Gotcha. And what does that review process look like? Are you doing this monthly, weekly, quarterly, annually? Just talk me through kind of how you review all of it. Yeah, I, I tend to track some companies more closely than others. Typically, the bigger position it is for me, the, the more I, I follow it. It also depends on the nature of, of the business model. So my number one holding today is Tesla, not because I designed it that way, but because Tesla, I've owned it for about 10 years now, and it's gone up so much that it's turned into my number one position. Now, Tesla is a super fun company to follow and analyze. So I, I, I review that company quarterly. But some of my other biggest holdings are more boring business businesses like Google. Google is a massive conglomerate that is very, very predictable. So I will always look at that company's results and I'll always look at a company like MasterCard and Visa and Amazon. I'll look at their results, but those businesses are very high quality and resilient. And as long as the numbers generally are trending in the right direction, I'll continue to hold. If a company is more speculative, I'm not against speculating as long as you position it appropriate, but a more speculative position it is for me, the more I'll have to watch it closely so those I review more frequently. But if it's like a big predictable company, I'll look at the earnings report and just kind of breeze through it and say, see you next quarter if everything looks fine. It's only when things are going awry that I take a harder look. Gotcha. And how do you think about cash as a percentage of your portfolio? So I, I tend to keep about 1% to 10% cash at any given time, depending on market conditions. Sometimes market conditions are ripe like they are right now, and it's a great time to be deploying excess capital. Other times, valuations are stretched, and I'm, I'm still deploying capital, but at a much slower pace. Sometimes companies that I own get bought out, and through no choice of my own, they become cash in my portfolio, and I'm constantly adding cash to my portfolio too. But broadly speaking, I try and be as invested as I can. I want my capital in productive assets like stocks for long periods of time. So I do keep a little bit of cash on the sidelines, but not much. Yeah. And I guess that depends on the time of the market, right? Like at a period like this, I'm assuming you're deploying more often than you would be relative to a normal time. 
right? And then is your advice for an average retail investor basically to just keep as much cash in an emergency fund as they need and then invest everything else? Or do you think there's some kind of other percentage they should keep elsewhere? So that's an important distinction that you made, and I'm glad that you brought that up. When I said my portfolio is 1% to 5% cash, I was specifically talking about the cash that's in my portfolio. Beyond that, I also keep an emergency fund at all times, and that's three to six months of my living expenses, and I don't consider that cash to be be investable. That's there to handle a life emergency when it eventually comes along. So I'm a huge fan of keeping my personal finances extremely conservative. So I don't have any debt to my name. I have a six-month emergency fund. We have multiple sources of income in our household. We have a very high, high savings rate. Those factors make my personal finances so rock solid that allows me to be able to withstand huge amounts of volatility in my investment portfolio. Because as my portfolio sinks, like it is right now, while it feels terrible, my actual lifestyle is in no way threatened at all. The only thing that hurts is the psychology of seeing my portfolio dwindle. So that's an important distinction. I, I still think in addition to having 1% to 5% in my portfolio cash, I still have a six-month emergency fund outside of that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what I figured. I wanted to ask just to clarify and see if you were actually insane or if you were, uh, <laughs> or if I misunderstood you. Okay. How do you think about debt? Is it Make sure you're debt-free and and clear everything out before you actually start investing, or do you have different advice around that? Broadly speaking, I am an anti-debt person. Yeah, and and maybe there's a distinction, too, between like good debt and bad debt. I'm more talking about bad debt, right? Like like student loans you need to get out of, right? Payments that you have to make, whatever it might be, not necessarily leverage. Yeah, broadly speaking, I'm anti-debt, all forms of debt. However, I do recognize that not all debt is created equally. For many years, I had a mortgage on my house and my interest rate was so low, I was like, I'm never going to pay this off, right? With When you factor in the inflation rate I and mean, how long this is locked up for and what I can earn by investing in other assets, it makes no sense financially to pay off my mortgage. I ended up paying off my mortgage, not because it was the mathematically correct thing to do. Mathematically, it was a dumb thing to do to pay off my mortgage. It was the emotionally smart thing to do to pay off my my, my mortgage. I, I just love the feeling of knowing now that no matter what happens to my finances and to my life, my house, is my family's home is in no way threatened. It's completely separate from what happens in the market. But broadly speaking, if you're young and you do have debt to your name, I do think there's an order that you could go through with your capital, right? Some people say, should I pay off my debt? Should I invest? I think the answer is usually a combination of the two, right? So if you have the ability to put money into the markets through a 401k and get a company match, that should come before paying off some types of debt. If you have credit card debt, that comes first, right? Wipe that out. If you have IRS debt, you need to pay for that too. If you have long-term student loan debt, if you have long-term mortgage debt, if you have car loan debt, right? That I would prioritize the 401k up to the match first and then focus on paying down the debt after that. So I recognize that not all debt is created equally. Some people, they don't want to pay off their mortgage. They're comfortable carrying debt. And financially, that makes fantastic sense. For me personally, I prefer to live a debt-free lifestyle. So I assume you're not a fan of the people I see online taking out credit cards to buy crypto. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, in that case, it's okay. Yeah, no, no, no. i obviously completely against that. That is probably one of the dumber things I've seen, which is saying something for sure. <laughs> All right, talk to me about the rule of 72. Yeah, this is a this is a fun one. So this is a shorthand that you can use to figure out how long it's going to take an asset to double in price. So broadly speaking, let's say you think an asset is going to grow at a 10% rate 
per year. One quick math think trick that you can do is say, how long is it going to take for me to double my money in this asset? Well, you take the number 72 and you divide it by the expected interest rate that you have, 10%. And in that case, it's going to take you 7.2 years for you to double your money. So this works. Basically, it's, it's a quick shorthand that works for all kinds of calculations, generally between like 3% and, and, and 40%. So if you're going to earn 40%, on something, what's that? The, you're going to double your money in a year. Geez, I can't even do the math on that quickly. 1.7 years or something like that. But it's just a quick shorthand for figuring out how long is it going to take me to double my money. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a, uh, a rule as old as time. I feel like I remember learning about that in school, the little things that they did teach me. All right, talk to me more generally about your book. What can people expect in it and why did you write it? Yeah, so I am not a natural writer. I would never have thought in a million years that I would be someone that would write a book because spelling, grammar, writing are not natural things for that. My mind is built for math. My mind is not built for, for writing. However, as I said, I've read dozens of books over the years about investing. So many of them are fantastic. But for years, I've just wondered why isn't there a book that exists in the market that just explains the extreme basics of how the stock market works and, and specifically answers the number one question about investing that I had when I first started, which was, why does the stock market go up? I think many people have seen that long-term chart of the S&P 500 or the Dow or the NASDAQ, and they see it's a squiggly line that goes from the bottom left to the upper right. I saw that too, and I'd heard for years the market goes up about 10% per year. And I was like, okay, I can clearly see that that's happening. Why? Why does it go up 10% per year? That part never made any sense to me. It also didn't make sense to me why the market would rebound after market crashes. You know, during 2000, during 2008, it made sense to me why the market was crashing, right? There was bad economic data coming out. The, the, the news was filled with negativity. It makes sense in that market why stocks are crashing. It never made sense to me why the market would reinflate and go back up and then set all-time highs. So my goal with the book was to provide people out there that have very little knowledge about the stock market with the very basic education that they need so that they can invest, invest with confidence. And in, in America, just in America, there's 100 million people with money in the markets in one way or another. And they, in a real way, are betting their financial future on the stock market going up over time. And I have no data to back this up, but I just know if you ask them, why does the stock market go up? You're going to get the wrong answer 99% of the time. So my goal with the book was to fill a part of a missing piece of education out there. And I didn't see any other book out there that addressed that topic. So hence why I wrote it. I love it. Yeah, I think that's great. Anything we can do to increase financial literacy, I think is amazing. So kudos to you for writing it. The book is called, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Where can people find the book? The best way to, you can find it on all the major retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. That's where most books are sold these days. Amazing. You sent it to me yesterday, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it looks amazing. And, and obviously you are incredible at this stuff. So I'm looking forward to checking it out myself. Ryan, thanks so much for doing this, man. Joe, thanks so much for having me. Of course. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.